I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. I think you guys have it. Uh, it's, it's just a simple way to understand something. It's a good, good cursor for, uh, do you have it, Brad? Oh, it's an angle scale. It's just a black and white picture. I'm not sure I gave it to, okay. So there it is. I'm not sure how well you can see this from there, but th- let me just orient you to this. It's, it's a really helpful thing just from a discipleship perspective. This is something I learned about, you know, way back when, when I was in seminary, and I always think of it as a mental picture. The basic way it works is this. You can imagine people on a scale from minus 10 to plus 5. Now, don't worry about exactly why those numbers are those numbers. But the, the basic thing is, is you could classify all humanity as being somewhere on the scale. And so somebody who is at a minus 10 basically has no grid for God. God's not even in there. They have no memory, no understanding, no concept of, of, of God. There are people that live in the world and walk around you know, the world who have no real framework even, no, no worldview of understanding of a higher power of of any way, shape, or form, let alone the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, um, and so there, there's this hardness and, and distance that, that, you know, that at a negative 10, and it moves progressively closer from you know, having an experience of emptiness to a vague awareness of there's something more like you know, the Christian message to an interest in Christianity to an awareness of the gospel to, to negative 5 beginning to have a positive attitude toward the gospel, like, huh, maybe there's something in this for me, to an experience, an, a tangible experience of the love of God, to an, uh, to an awareness of your personal need for, you know, the, the gospel and change, to, to grasping the implications, to, to having a challenge to respond personally, that you actually have to do something, to zero. Now, zero is the line of demarcation because it's at zero where there's repentance and faith. Now, zero is the line where you transfer into discipleship. Okay, so, so, so you might know people or you might yourself be somewhere on this scale right now. I'm not, nobody's pointing fingers. You can kind of think about it yourself. But I can tell you that zero is the point where discipleship begins to happen. You begin to move beyond this to, to you know, evaluation of the decision and learning the basics of the Christian faith and a functioning member of, the lo- of a local church or, you know, a body of believers, continuing growth in character, lifestyle and service and you know, and then really effective sharing of life and faith and becoming a disciple maker yourself. And um, this is a helpful thing that I think about all the time in terms of even as you, as you minister to people, you kind of think in your mind, now where, this person's maybe about a negative seven. And today, if I could just get to a negative six, that'd be a good day. Sometimes you go from a negative seven to a positive three. I mean, there's God's, he's, 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 he's miraculous. He can heal in a prayer, right? And so he can move people quickly. But this is the basic thing I'm trying to get at is, is that there's, there's some need for us to understand in a very, very deep way that just because there's a tenderness that's come into our heart to think about the things of God, that doesn't mean we're necessarily a disciple. And, and following Jesus, really, truly following Jesus is a his way sort of thing. It's not a, discipleship is not a your way kind of thing. And you know, there's a big difference. Uh, in, there's a, a discipleship um, is maybe all the difference between being a fan of God and being being an actual follower. You can be a fan of Jesus quite easily. In many parts of the world, you know, I go, especially though here in the West, there is there's still you know, much about Jesus that, that people who aren't even believers still admire, right? And so you hear people say they like his ethical teaching. Hey, you know, he teaches, he's a, he's a, if you just follow his, the, the ethics that he puts forth, it's a good thing. Are there elements of justice that people see in Jesus' teaching that they like? Um, or others respect some of his spiritual insights? You know, wow, that's, that was really deep. And other people just like the beauty of his words. 
And it's, it becomes, if you think about it, no matter where I go in the world, it's, 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 if you just kind of leave it at that level, it's generally fairly easy to be a fan of Jesus. Particularly if we think Jesus is, is here or came or exists to kind of rubber stamp our lives or our agenda and to give us what we want. But a fan of the Lord or, is not the same as a Christian because a fan is not, is not a disciple. And so I want to get into five aspects of that discipleship. I'm actually going to cover four today and a fifth one next week. Uh, and I'll tell you what they are so you'll know where I'm going. And, and that way there's no mystery. Um, here they are. Ready? One, discipleship is essential or necessary. I'll, I'll break that down for you. Second, discipleship is responsive. I'll break that down. Discipleship third is costly. Fourth, it's corporate. And then next week, I'll get at this one. Discipleship is missional. And so let's get into this. Uh, uh, point one, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And what we see here in Mark 1, 14 and 15, if, if, you're, if you're ever in a hurry, read the book of Mark. I mean, the book of Mark just gets at it quickly. You can read it in a single setting and, it, and immediately, things keep happening immediately. And there's an opportunity in this to, to just see um, how quickly the Lord is moving through the lens of Mark's gospel. And what we see in this passage it helps us make sense of why we have the calling of the first disciples, like how they're called, why they're called. It happens immediately after this verse. And so here it is. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the very first in Mark's gospel, public words of Jesus, kind of like a press conference, you know, to announce that he's now on the scene, he's open for business. It's kind of the, you know, the, the banner that says now open. It's so significant, you know, th- this is Jesus laying out what's going on. And it's, if you think about it, it's typical of Jesus. One of the reasons I love him is because he's so outrageous. What he's claiming about himself is so outrageous. He says, first off, he says the time is fulfilled. You see that in there where he says the time is fulfilled? In other words, he says there's a shape of time, right? Like if you, if you had a little bit of time, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the vessel, it's, 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 you know, maybe a quarter full. But he says, he says in him, the time is now fulfilled. And, and in other words, um, there's something that's been going on up until now that anticipates this moment. So Jesus is basically teaching, in fact, the whole beginning of Mark teaches about the significance of what's done to prepare. The very first two verses of Mark, actually there's no verb in verse 1. It says the beginning of the gospel of Mark. That's all it says. There's no such thing in the Greek as a verbless clause. So if you want to know the beginning of the gospel of Mark, actually it's the first two verses. The beginning of the gospel of Mark, just as it was written in the book of Isaiah. So Mark is saying the beginning of the gospel isn't this story. The beginning of the gospel goes way back. And if you have a gospel that begins with the life of Jesus, you've reduced it down too far. The foundation of the gospel is the story of Israel. And so here we have in this Jesus saying that he's teaching us in this one little phrase that the whole Old Testament has been leaning forward, waiting for like this very moment. And there's a sense in which the Old Testament is a, 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 pro, a waiting promise, anticipation, and the time that it that it's been waiting for is this time, Jesus says. The time has now come because Jesus is here. And so Jesus is saying, I am all 
I, I, am, I am what all history has been waiting for. So humble. I love that about Jesus. People who respect the humility and ethics of Jesus often overlook this kind of statement. I'm here, the time's fulfilled. I am what all reality revolves around. <laughs> we think about this. Isn't that the craziest, most egotistical thing that anybody could ever say if it isn't true? So he says the time's fulfilled. He also says that the kingdom of God is at hand. And saying it's at hand is another way of saying all of the, the big ticket items that God has promised to do, that we've been waiting to be fulfilled, he's now about to do because Jesus is here on the scene. And so Jesus is saying, now that I've arrived, all the God stuff is really going to kick into high gear and we're going to really get going now. Jesus has a very Jesus-centric view of reality. Doesn't he? Make sense? So think about this. How is God most going to make his love known? And how is God most going to make his wisdom known? And how is God most going to make his justice known? Because Jesus is here, how is he going to do that? And so we're going to see the, the rule of God, the reign of God breaking into the world in, in the person of Jesus in a way that's never broken in before, different than it's ever broken in before, even though there were shadows, Colossians says, throughout the Old Testament. Now, because Jesus is here, it's going to look different. So the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So here's the key point. Here's why I went through all that with you. It means something for us that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. It's not just information. It's not just an FYI or a heads up or, hey, just letting you guys know I'm going to be in town if anybody wants to hang. Jesus is saying that this has an immediate personal implication for every single one of us. He says the time's fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. So whatever it is that's going on with Jesus demands a response from us. And so this announcement of the time being fulfilled in the kingdom of uh, and having the kingdom having comes is a summons from the Lord. It's, it's like Jesus is like, a, a, he's like a, an officer of the court issuing a summons to you to say, you need to, you know, the, the Lord's now at, at hand. It's time for you to change. And the fact that Jesus says repent tells us what the issue is for us because the word repent, it means a lot, but just simply means to turn around. That's the simplest way to understand it. If you're as bad as I am, uh, it happens about five times a day, you know, where literally you have to turn around, you know, I mean, if you, the construction on the road, you know, I see it happen all the time where people are, are coming to deliver something here and they go past and then they call and they go, hey, how do I, how do I even get into that place? And go, well, you've got to turn around and come back. Yesterday I was driving with my friend Dwayne up in, around, in Georgia, actually, we were in, around Folkestone and we'd gone north far enough and, and I said, hey, turn around and he missed, you know, the turn where we were going to turn into this place and he had to do a legal U-turn even though he told me you're not supposed to do that. I do them all the time but he's a rules follower. He crossed a double yellow line and but he had to do it in order to turn around. And this is literally, you know, what Jesus is, is saying. Repenting means turning around. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus is saying that every one of us needs to turn around, then what he's saying is, is that we, generally speaking, are going the wrong way in life. He's saying that we do not naturally line up with God's ways. You're going in the opposite direction of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is why the angle scale is very helpful to see, hey, there's a point where I cross over and I'm actually following Jesus. He's not saying, this is what he's not saying. The time 
It's fulfilled, and it, 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 the kingdom of God is now at hand. So, you know, God's about to kick off his purposes in a big way, and a little bit of fine-tuning is probably going to help you a bit, Jeff. He's not saying, hey, listen, Jeff, you're basically good. You're basically heading in the right direction. Let's just have a little tweak here and there and maybe just do a little better version of you, your best you, and then we're good. No, he's saying, Jeff, your whole life needs to be reoriented. It shows us why, why repentance is the first words out of his mouth about what it takes to be one of his is repentance, and this shows us why it's so urgent. I saw the story of an old man who was confused and driving down the wrong side of the freeway, and somebody called the police, and they were able to flag him down and escort him off the road and, and return him back safely to his, his home. And it's a really sad story, but because it was the middle of the night, there wasn't hardly any other cars on the, on the road, and nobody was hurt, no damage was done. But if you were doing that at rush hour, it'd be a pretty different, it'd be a different story, wouldn't it? And, and, and Jesus is essentially saying that left to ourselves, we're all driving through life on the superhighway on the wrong way. We're in the wrong direction, on the wrong side of the road. And, and we're about to meet the, the rush hour of God's purposes coming in the other direction. And therefore, we have to turn around and actually get lined up with what God's doing. If God's kingdom is about to come and we're lined up contrary to God's kingdom, then we need to repent. We need to turn and that's the proper response to the coming of the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God's coming, we've got to get lined up with it, right? So Jesus' summons is good news because it says repent and believe in the gospel. It's also very humbling because Jesus is actually saying, Jeff, your whole life is lined up the wrong way. Now, that's the case for every single one of us. He doesn't single out any one type of person or any one personality. It's a human issue. This is us as a species. It's also actually quite affirming because it shows us how much we matter to God. He does want us to be part of his kingdom. He does want us to, to, to be part of the program. He doesn't want us to get mowed over by his purposes, but to get caught up in what he's doing. And so the first point for us is there cannot be discipleship without repentance. Amen. <laughs> Maybe not. Amen. So, the phrase, God loves us just as we are, isn't untrue, but it's only partially true. Right? It, 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 it can be really misleading if it's all that somebody hears. You know, God loves you just the way you are. It, what it can imply to a person is, that the way that I am right now, just as I am, is quite fine. I'm perfectly lovable, really just like this, thank you very much. Whereas God loves me as I am actually says something about God and his character, not something about me, right? God loves me just as I am because of what he's like, not because of what I'm like. And because God is love and he can love us as we are, but he doesn't want to leave me as I am. There's going to be repentance. There's going to be change. There's going to be reordering and renovation in my life. Side note, similarly, we shouldn't believe, though, that repentance is the condition of becoming a disciple. Like, if you somehow repent enough or repent at the right level, then you get to follow Jesus. You get in. Sometimes we treat repentance as like it's the work that we do that fulfills the preconditions of having a relationship with God. Like we're going to get ourselves cleaned up first and then present ourselves to God. It's kind of like smuggling in, you know, 
the, the, our stuff. It's like a justification by works. It's smuggled in. It's kind of like playing a video game, you know, where you unlock the next level and eventually you repent your way up to discipleship level. You don't repent in order to, to get God to love you. You repent because he loves you. Repentance isn't the condition of God's love. It's the fruit of God's love. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. You want to read a good book about this? It's a book by Sinclair B. Ferguson called The Whole Christ that talks beautifully about the relationship between works and love and repentance. It's a beautiful book. And the fact that Jesus puts the gospel and repentance together shows me that repentance is part of the good news. It's not that I have to repent. It's that I get to repent. It's good news that it's actually possible for me to turn my life around and to get it under going in the same direction as God's. But therefore, I have to actually turn and follow him because I'm not lined up the right way. I'm going the wrong way and I'm following all the wrong things. And I needed the point in my life where I had to say, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to start following you, Lord. And so discipleship or following Jesus is essential. It's necessary. That means there's no such thing as a Christian non-disciple. Disciple is another word for Christian. It's one of the primary categories of what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's not that there are Christians, and then later, if you decide to, you can also be a Christian that's a disciple. If you're not a disciple, if you're not following the Lord actively, you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. Amen. Second point. Look at, look at the next verse through verse 20. Discipleship is responsive. Responsive. So Mark 1, 16 to 20. He sets it up by saying what we need to do, and then, he, then, then we get immediately the call. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, or farther, if you're from the south, or you pronounce it correctly, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, this is two instances wrapped up into one of Jesus calling people to follow him, two sets of brothers, two sets of fishermen. Fishing wasn't a hobby for them. This is what they, you know, they weren't out... Like, Dwayne and I had a kayak yesterday, and we were out, and we thought maybe we'd fish. We didn't really fish, but, you know, if we did, it would have been just for fun. And fishing wasn't a hobby for these guys. This is what they did. This was their livelihood. This is what they needed to do to have food to eat. And they're called by Jesus to leave this provision and to follow him immediately. So let's think about this. Let's think about what they're called to and think about how they respond. First off, they're called to Jesus. He calls them to himself. They're called to Jesus. Jesus says to them, follow me. (laughs) We're not called to follow pastors or churches or systems or this or that. We're called to follow Jesus. Follow me only as far as you see me following Christ. Christianity is about Christ. It's being a Christian is about following. Jesus isn't saying to them, look, I got a set of ethical issues I want you to learn and agree with. He isn't saying I have a moral framework I want you to adopt. He's saying, follow me. Come to me. It's important. It's important to us because you can't be a disciple of Jesus without having devotion to the man. It's very easy 
in, in parts, particularly in parts of the U.S., I think, in our culture, to be kind of a kind of part of a Christian culture. You know, I kind of like going to church. I kind of like the church scene. I kind of like Christians. I kind of like Christian values. I kind of like cohesion on certain social values, and I kind of don't like others. But here's the question you have to ask yourself. Do I love Jesus today? Do I love him today? Yeah. Do I, do I feel something in my heart even that, that yearns for him the way I yearn for, for other people that I love, like my wife or my children or my best friend? Do I love Jesus? Do I have this sense deep within me of Jesus? I love you. You are, I'm devoted to you. Not am I doing good stuff or am I consciously, a, you know, uh, am I? Am I? What kind of awareness do I have of my love of God? Do I take a step back maybe and think of this? Am I really following Jesus today? And I can, I can demonstrate it by this, by this deep emotional draw to him, to the man. Follow me. They're called to Jesus. Also, though, they're called to service. You look at verse 17 up there. Follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Now let's talk about this fishing. I'm not an expert on fishing. I've done a lot of it in my life. I haven't done much of it recently. I wish my, my brother Dwayne was here so he could get up and give you testimony or, or maybe Dom. Some of you guys are really good fishermen and I appreciate that about you. But let me tell you two things about fishing. Number one, it's not easy. And number two, it takes time. The whole thing takes time. Right? Now, it doesn't mean, let me tell you something. My grandfather taught me wrong. My grandfather said, you go out, you get the bait, you put it on the hook, you throw it in the water, you let it go down, you pull your hat down, you take a nap and you wait. That's not, that's not what I mean by patience. Good fishermen change stuff all the time. They drop it in, they don't get a hit, they change something. They change the bait, they change the presentation, they change where they are, they change something. They keep changing, they keep looking for something that works. But they don't pack up their stuff and go home because the first lure they drop in, they don't get a hit. So, it's not easy. Fish don't want to be caught. Neither do people. But the difference is, it's in the best interest of people to be caught. <laughs> I read a story about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, before he was president, was a governor. Did you know that? Before he was a governor, he was an actor. Did you know that? Before he was an actor, he was a lifeguard. And when he was a lifeguard, he said that he would, um, and I guess on the California coast, he'd say, he had to go out and rescue a lot of people. And when Reagan was asked about this, he said the predominant emotion that people expressed when he saved them was anger. So that was the predominant thing. The majority of people had anger. He, he, Reagan said people don't like being saved. Isn't that strange? It's not, not only is it not easy fishing, but it takes time. You know, it's not always a dramatic or impressive way for the kingdom to grow. Jason... We can tell you, oh, look at you, looked up. You, you, sometimes the big one gets away. Uh, Jason has a, a slightly inappropriate video on, on, uh, on his Facebook about almost catching a catfish or something big. It's, it's not always dramatic or impressive. It, it, the, kingdom, the kingdom of God doesn't always grow this way. It, it, the kingdom of God in this following is no place for, you know, Jesus, I'm really good at this. You're really lucky to have me. He actually makes us fishers of men. All of us. All of us. He makes us. 
So we're called to Jesus, and we're called to follow him, we're called to serve him. It's both together, called to him, called to serve. Some people try to follow him without serving him. It's a periphery thing, like, you know, I'm cool hanging out here. There's a church, a big, big, I think the biggest church in America, that has, I might have to fix this next week if I have this right. They have now defined engagement, Christian engagement. So somebody who's engaged in the church, they define that as somebody who comes slightly less than two times per month to church. That's considered engagement in the body of Christ. And they're saying, you know, you better get used to it, America. We have to reorient our thinking about what it means for people as followers of Jesus to be engaged. If they come to a service and spend an hour hanging out, you know, and then go home, and they do that around 1.75 times a month, they're qualified as engaged. Some people will try to follow him without serving him, and others try to serve him without following him, right? They love doing this stuff, but don't really enjoy the Lord. They love the work more than Jesus. His disciples at one point come back to him and go, dude, you're not going to believe it. We were casting out demons. It was so awesome. And he says, you know, that's really good that you were casting out demons, but don't rejoice that the demons were subject to you. Rejoice that your name is in the book of life. You know, rejoice in, in, in your identity in me. Well, the disciples are called by Jesus to leave their nets. Uh, you can see in that passage, they have to leave their nets and leave their father. Uh, it, it, there's two different aspects to the leaving there. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean in this, in the Gospels, when they do this, they ditch their responsibilities. It isn't, this isn't what this means, that we're called by God to follow Jesus and to serve him. That means we ditch all our responsibilities. In fact, you could make an argument that they might have actually gone back to fishing after the after the crucifixion, resurrection, and some of them in a more permanent way, and they disciple through that. What it's about is it's about allegiance. Jesus comes first. He's supreme. Everything else comes second. He's before everything else. Even the best things in, in my life, like family, livelihood, security, etc., etc., etc. There is a story about soldiers during the Crusades who were baptized. When they were baptized, they would hold their sword out of the water. You know? Their whole lives given over to Jesus, but not their sword because they wanted their sword to be, you know, to be able to, they didn't want their sword to be, a, you know, a, a baptized sword. And we're like this, aren't we? We're tempted to hold something back from following him, like just to hold something back. And, you know, if you were to come over to my house to visit me, my house, uh, our house, just so you know, is not a museum. It just isn't. We don't, you know... It's just we don't really care that much about it having the appearance of being a museum. I'm not saying there's something wrong with you if you have OCD about yours, and it does. I'm just saying it isn't. It's not, but I don't, want it, I don't really want you to see it the way it really looks all the time. So right before you come over, I'm going to shove all of the mess into one room. And I'm going to hide it and put yellow crime scene, scene tape around it and say, you know, you can, you, can, you can look anywhere you want but that one room where all my stuff is crammed. You know, you can't look in that. And... And so essentially, I say the same thing to the Lord. Jesus, you can't get into my stuff. You can, you know, you can come into my life, but you can't get into all my stuff. But he wants that. He wants access. And if you won't, here's the, here's the bad news about this. If you will not give him full access to your heart, your heart will grow, grow cold. And the worship music won't move you to tears like it used to. You go, well, I don't know what it used to. I used to cry. I used to feel something. I don't feel it anymore. Jesus asks us for for nothing less than to come to him and follow him before everything and anything else that's in my life. He's worthy of nothing less than that. 
And it's an immediate response. You see that in this passage. If we're ever aware, look, this is the, this is the most significant encouragement or warning. You can put it whatever terms you want. If you're ever aware that Jesus is pinpointing something in your life, the time to respond is now. The enemy will talk you out of it immediately. Sometimes you can be in a service, you can experience healing and walk outside and start thinking, man, it didn't really, didn't really happen. Immediately. So the time to respond is immediately. And somehow, somehow in our culture, we believe that disobedience is different from delayed obedience. <laughs> it's not. I'll get round to it is not discipleship. I say that to Carol a lot about the garbage. But, you know, yeah, I'll take it out later. And then she ends up taking it out. And so when we did a marriage assessment just recently, it said roles and jobs. Who takes out the trash? And I said, both of us. And she checked, I do. <laughs> Because I say, I'll get around to it, and then she takes it out. And so when we say to Jesus, I'll get around to it, he does it, and we don't. It doesn't count. Discipleship is both total and urgent. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we realize that he's better at running our lives than we are anyway. Right? So another good question for you, if you like to like, put down questions to think about, which voices in this world are you giving priority to? The voice of Jesus, hearing from him, the word of God, the words of Jesus, is that it's a daily necessity. I can't operate properly in my role in ministry or as a husband or as a father, as a friend, without the voice of Jesus in my life. And so here's the question that goes on top of that. Whose approval do you want or need more than Jesus? Discipleship's responsive. Jesus calls, we follow. Okay, third point. Discipleship's costly. Flip over to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is speaking here, not to his disciples, but he's speaking to non-disciples. He's speaking to people who aren't following him. And calling the crowd to him, these are the non-disciples, with his disciples, he said to them, the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, if you want to get in on this deal, this is what it involves. No asterisk, no small print, no like a drug commercial. You know, at the end of the drug commercial where it's like, you know, you could, this, this, will, this is going to heal you. It's going to make you better in all these ways. And the end it goes... There are some side effects to take this thing. You can be fine. You could die. You could die again. You could die three times or die four times. There's none of this in what Jesus is doing. He doesn't put it in the small print. You know what it says in the bottom of your update? Do you agree to the terms and conditions? How many of you Christians check, yeah, I've read these and agree to them? Liars. You've not read them. Jesus doesn't ever hide the cost of following him. He doesn't ever embed the terms and conditions deeply in some sort of like back, you know, page appendix. You know, he, he doesn't make it small print. He, he, he's bad at PR. He's bad at sales. He's horrible at marketing. Jesus wants people to know before they follow him that it's going to be difficult. Why? Well, because it involves denying self. Radically reorienting our lives to his life. Currently, we, we live in a cultural reality that says that the highest form of expression is to discover and to exalt ourselves. 
And currently in our culture, expressing self is considered the greatest good in your life. It's a, it's a great aim of your life. The, our, 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 the cultural message that, that rings out all the time is you need to discover your true self. How? How do you do this? Well, you look deep inside your heart and determine your desires and your feelings, and your desires define who you are. The deeper your desires, the more core to your identity that desire is. So you need to discover your true self. You've got to be true to yourself. It's only by being true to yourself, by identifying these deep feelings, that you can be authentically and wholly you. People tell me, that this is virtually the message of every Disney movie in the last 10 years. It's been a while since I've watched them. I do remember Mulan. Mulan, the whole theme of Mulan was be true to yourself. It's a very Western way to think. Do you know apparently Mulan, uh, you know China's the second largest market in the world for these sorts of things. So Disney said, hey, Mulan, Chinese culture, they'll love it. Send it to there, it bombed. Because this idea, this message isn't true in Chinese culture that the highest value is to look to yourself. So the most important thing we can do, in, you know, culturally speaking, the most essential thing is to express ourselves. And so the greatest sin in our culture is to be seen to constrain anyone from being who they are. But Jesus doesn't say express yourself, you do you. Jesus says deny yourself. In other words, Jeff... This is going to involve you saying a profound no to some of your deepest longings and feelings, some of your deepest ambitions, some of your strongest yearnings and intuitions. Jesus says, take up your cross. You see that? Oh, maybe it's not in that one. It's in the the one before that. He says, take up your cross. Now, at the time of Jesus, this wasn't some sort of flowery way of just bearing with your weird aunt at Thanksgiving. You know, you know, Aunt Bertha's coming. We all have our cross to bear. It'll be okay. Just get through it. He's not talking about, you know, putting on jewelry. Bear, you know, hey, you know, take up your cross. The context Jesus is speaking about taking up your cross is a very real and very literal context that people could see all around them. And when you were sentenced to be crucified, you would, at, at that point, you would take up your cross and be led by carrying your cross to the place where you're going to be executed. When you take up your cross, your life as you know it is forfeit and you have no rights. So as you're led to the place of execution, people could actually say and do anything to you that they wanted to do. And so you can imagine if somebody was a particularly notorious, hated criminal and they were taking up their cross, it could be a pretty nasty scene on the way to be crucified. And one historian has actually said that some criminals were actually relieved to arrive at the place of crucifixion because of how brutal and how they were, brutally they were treated by the crowds. Now, of all the images that Jesus could have plucked out of the air to market himself, Jesus says discipleship is going to look like taking up your cross. Not a great marketing campaign. <laughs> but honest. And there's a sense in, sense in which all of us have to confront this and say, am I really willing to yield my rights? Not to the whole world, but to Jesus. It doesn't mean you become a kind of cringing non-person that gets walked over by, by everybody in the world. He's not saying you just become a victim of all the people around you. He's just saying you yield your entire life to him. Follow me instead of following you. 
deny you, no to you, yes to me. That's going to be costly. The next verse says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So when Jesus says my sake and the gospels, he's not saying you have to live for me in some sort of vague and undefined way. Jesus is saying you lose your life for the Jesus that comes with this gospel message and the, the Jesus that summons you with a very specific message. He's not calling you to, to follow the Jesus that's in your imagination. He says, follow the Jesus of this gospel. And here's the thing that I take from this verse that I find bizarrely comforting. Jesus is saying there's going to be a time in my discipleship that it feels like Jesus is killing me. He says, following me is going to feel like I'm losing my life, like I'm losing at life. And yet the weird thing is, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will actually save it. The very act of yielding myself to the Lord is the means by which I receive and gain myself. Does that make sense? So denying yourself doesn't mean you become a non-person. The beautiful paradox that I see of all of the Christian life is that by denying yourself and following Jesus, you actually become the true you, the true you that God thought up in the first place. Think about it. God had the idea of you to start with. Before you had the idea of you, God had the idea of you. And when God was having the idea of you, he was having a good day when he came up with the idea of you. Oh, crud, Jeff. I'll make a Jeff. It's going to go bad, but I'll make him anyway. I was having a good day. And the real you that God thought up in the first place is supposed to deny yourself and follow Jesus. That's how it works. And as you do that, you actually become who you truly are, who you're made by God to be. I don't know how Jesus pulls that off. But if every one of us in this room were actually to become more like Jesus Christ, if we were to truly follow him, first off, that'd be awesome. And second, we would all become more like Jesus, but we wouldn't become more like each other. We don't all get flattened out into some sort of monochrome Christian personality like a corporate blob. As we become more like Jesus, we become our true selves, which is, again, it's why the worldview is so tragically twisted, because the best way to be yourself is to deny yourself and to follow him. I have here in my notes quote from your Christianity, but I don't have the quote, so it was a really good quote. Right? And you love it. So a couple of questions to reflect on and take home and put on your bathroom mirror to contemplate while you're getting ready in the morning. It will help you in this area of, of, of costly. What does God love that I'm tempted to hate? That's a good question to contemplate in this idea of denying self. What does God love that I'm tempted to hate? And what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? Because being a disciple will mean loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Here's another question. What does God want me to let go of that I'm tempted to hold on to? And what does God want me to hold on to that I'm tempted to let go of? I don't like these questions. Because in all honesty, for Jeff, the answer is tons of stuff. God is showing me and showing us what we need to do to just deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. Discipleship is costly. Finally, this one isn't going to be long, and I don't have an ending. I have a Mike Bickle ending. It just says, amen, let's stand. You know, it's, there's no, no real, it just kind of, I don't have a, a, a cute story. I don't even have the quote from your Christianity, so uh, it's just going to kind of end. But uh, discipleship is corporate. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, 
See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this, t- this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Oops. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. <clears throat> now, Jesus says this immediately following an encounter with a guy we call the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler looks like the perfect disciple. He comes up and he wants to jump on the Jesus train. He's like straight out of the casting room. Perfect, you know, it'd be like the $20 million actor that would be the rock or somebody, you know. He's the perfect disciple. But he doesn't follow Jesus, does he? He doesn't leave behind what Jesus, he doesn't deny himself and follow Jesus. He doesn't do what Jesus is telling him to do. It's kind of a bummer. And Peter, who's the emotionally intelligent disciple, decides in verse 28 to talk about it. And talk about how amazing he and the other disciples are. Hey, he couldn't do it, but check us out, man. We did it. And so Peter says, hey, Jesus, we left everything and we follow you. That guy failed, but we've left everything. We're the star disciples. We've done everything you've asked. What's next? What's the next, next task? Next, whatever it is, bring it on. We'll do it. And Jesus' response, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Notice what Jesus is assuming. Jesus is assuming that we're going to have to leave things to follow him. That's basic discipleship, folks. Jesus is assuming that the most costly things to leave will be relational. I don't really have that hard time leaving stuff. It can be hard to leave stuff. That doesn't bother me, but it's hard to leave relationships. When it's time to say goodbye to people we love to follow Jesus, that's hard. But even in the case where someone leaves behind their entire home and family, and even for that person, even in this life, it's going to be really worth it, Jesus says, because that person gets back a hundredfold now. In this time, in the age to come, they get eternal life. And Jesus' response to the cost of discipleship, even in its most extreme case, isn't, yep, it's going to be terrible, but don't worry, at the end, you're going to get some stuff back. You'll get heaven true as that is, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, even in this life, it's worth it. What he promises here is fellowship. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers, children, land. You do get a side order of persecution, whether you ordered it or not, thrown in free of charge. But Jesus is saying, in other words, you get family. It's part of discipleship. And so discipleship is corporate We realize we're no longer individual Christians. We realize we are someone's mother or father. We're someone's brother or sister. We're someone's son or daughter. We're part of a group. And discipleship means that we find ourselves on this trail of going, man, I'm growing in Christ, but I'm a kid. I need some help. Where's where's a spiritual dad? Or I'm becoming a dad. Where's the spiritual teenagers I can draw along? You begin to look around you and go, man, we're a family. And we can argue. We can not get along. We can have family feuds, but we still get together for Thanksgiving. We link arms because we have a common enemy. We're part of a family, and Jesus is giving a gift to us as disciples. He's giving us family. You could be the most lonely person in this room. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've truly denied yourself to follow him, you are embedded within the most significant family the world has ever known. Glory. Glory.
also means that if that's the case, then we are the family that Jesus is giving to new followers. That's daunting. We've got to clean up our act. People are watching. You can't be a disciple on your own. You can't... The picture that always comes to mind to me, if you're young, you won't even know this reference, but there's no Unabomber Christianity. You can't go live out in a hut by yourself, isolation, and grow really close to Jesus. There's no deep holiness without social holiness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer figured this out in Nazi Germany with an underground group of family, and he said that the problem that we have is we expect more from our community than Jesus did people were flawed and Jesus followed him the people were flawed and they didn't get it none of them really got it except maybe John you know even at the crucifixion none of them really got it until later and some of them you know abandoned him completely and and yet he said this is my family this is my band of brothers and somehow we expect within the church that it's all going to be smooth it's a family sometimes it's highly dysfunctional You are now a disciple as part of a family of disciples and the technical term for that family of disciples is the church. Yeah. Bert, would you come up here and pray? You're a good father. Come on. This man loves the Lord, and he's loved the Lord for a long, long time. He's led a lot of people to Jesus. He just got to preside over the ordination of his son. He was there with him as his son. And I want him as a good dad to pray, but I'm going to ask you to stand if you can. If you want to come to the altar, you can come to the altar. It's, it's open. We're not, he's open for business. But Bert's going to pray, and then Brian's going to play. When he said that we join a family, you do realize it's, it's all over the world. I can testify wherever I have gone, I have found family, the family of God. And they may be black, they may be brown, they may be yellow, they may be white, but they're part of the family. And when you joined it, you do not realize, but in this place, there's like a nerve endings all over the place and we're connected one to another. That includes you, you, and you, and me. So let's pray. Together, I'm just leading. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to bless your name. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together. Thank you, Lord, that we are made one through you, Jesus Christ. And we can understand by the grace of God that the love that you have for us applies to each one of us and that through your love we're able to love each other and to love those who are not part of this body. Thank you, Lord, that you have your people all over the world and that we are part of that family. And thank you, Lord, that uh, we, we aren't expected to be perfect in everything that we do, but we are expected to trust you to perfect yourself in us. I can always say, Lord, 
that my greatest aim is to be like Jesus. But thanks be to God that you gave the promise that when we received Jesus Christ, it was your determination that we should be like him. And that's the desire of our hearts. Bless us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.